0: for people
1: who really fancy a good story i'm emily and i'm rebecca and if you've clicked on this episode you'll have seen the length of it so you should know that we get really really infatuated (laughs) like really infatuated with stuff this time it's really fun but also it is hilarious (laughs) (laughs) so just strap in it's gonna be good strap in (laughs) So, Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with Little Thieves by Margaret Owen. That is an exceedingly
0: (gasps) beautiful book. I'm going to talk more about it later, but it is. (laughs) Um, So, I would first like to say that I had another idea for this episode. Like, I didn't think this book was going to be in this season. Right. But it has taken hold of me. (laughs) (laughs) It won't let go. So yeah, this came out in 2021 and is a loose retelling of The Goose Girl, because obviously I'm in love with another fairy tale retelling. We love that. That's (laughs) the theme of the season. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not going to lie, I might be talking for a while today. It's a very big book. It's 500 pages and it includes like marriage plots and murder plots and heists and it's a fantasy which means we have lots of words I also can't pronounce again but like I said this book really like sank its claws into me so there's a lot that I want to share about it so two little things this is the dedication to the gremlin girls I would like to tell you something inspiring but the truth is when life closes a door for us it doesn't always open a window the good news is that's what bricks are for <laughs> <laughs> and this is the epigraph which is labeled as an almanic proverb so it's part of the world the little thief steals gold but the great one steals kingdoms and only one goes to the gallows Ooh. Mm. <laughs> i think both of those show you like a bit of the vibe of the book um but before i say any more about the plot i'm going to read like the opening of the book.
1: Exciting. I like that this has become a thing that we do. And it's like, I'm gonna read the be beginning <laughs> <a> it. <movie. laughs> yeah.
0: Once upon a time, on the coldest night of midwinter, in the darkest heart of the forest, death and fortune came to a crossroads. They stood tall and unfathomable in the glass smooth snow, death in her shroud of pyre smoke and shadows, and fortune in her gown of gold and bones. More than that cannot be said, for no two souls see death and fortune the same way. Yet we all know when we meet them. On this night, a woman had come to do just that, meet them. Her dull, carrot-coloured curls twisted from under a woolen cap, her wind-burnt red face as worn as the threadbare cloak over her shoulders. One hand clutched a dimming iron lantern, which smouldered just bright enough to catch the snowflakes flitting by like fireflies before they melted into the dark. Her other hand was locked around the ragged mitt of a little girl beside her. Please, the woman said, shivering in snow up to her shins. We're stretched in to feed the twelve other mouths already. and this one, she's ill luck. Wherever she goes, the milk spoils, the wool tangles, the grain spills. Whatever she touches falls to ruin. The little girl said nothing. She's only... Fortune tilted her head, and the wreath of coins around her brow shimmered and flipped, changing from copper, to coal, to silver, to gold. Three? Ten? Forgive me, I never know with you humans. Four, Death said in her soft, dark voice, for Death always knew. Fortune wrinkled her nose. Young, the proper age to be spilling grain and breaking things. "'She's the thirteenth. the woman insisted, shoving the lantern higher as if to drive her point home like a stubborn cow. "'Weak firelight caught on fortune's coin wreath on the wispy hem of death's hood. "'Like me, that makes her the thirteenth daughter or thirteenth daughter, her luck's wrought into the core. "'You told your other children you'd take her into the woods to seek her fortune.' "'The low god plucked a coin from her wreath and let it dance about her fingers.' flashing copper and silver, gold and black. In truth, you were seeking me, death finished in her dark velvet voice, and the woman's features crumpled with shame. Yet here you have found us both. You have come far, through the dark and through the frost, to ask our favour. Asking a blessing of the Lady of Luck, risky, no way to know what that would be. Fortune's face slipped between cruelty and sympathy as her coin slipped through quick fingers, flashing day and night, red and white. Death, on the other hand, did not stir. You know my gifts, and so you know there is plenty I can take, little I can give, but I will tell you, only one of you will go home. The woman drew a sharp breath. Fortune smiled and her coin flashed like the sun in the snow, Like shadow and like blood. You sought death in the woods. Did you think the way back would be easy? The woman said nothing. The flame in the lantern burned lower. Ask, death commanded, what will you have of us? The lantern shook in the woman's hand, her knuckles cracked with callous and cold. I want what's best for, for everyone. Choose, death commanded again, which of you will return? The woman let go of her daughter fortune lifted the girl's chin she found two eyes of sharpest black and a pale freckled face two braids the color of the lantern's flame tied off in bits of rag what is your name death asked as the woman turned and fled the crossroads stealing away the last scrap of firelight vanya was the first thing i said to my
1: godmothers my name is vanya oh my god How good is that? (laughs) That is amazing. (gasps) The repetition. I know. The 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 coin coin is so good. It's so good. That's so cinematic. Like, I can see it. I know. So,
0: yeah, there's seven tales interspersed throughout the book. This is the first one, which is titled Godmothers. And I love that last line because you obviously start the book thinking it's third person narration, Mm. and then at the very last line, you realise it was Vanya's narration. She's just telling us a story, and I love that little twist. Like I genuinely wasn't expecting it when I read that line, and she was like, "Oh, I said." I was like, (gasps) "What?" (laughs) So yeah, throughout the book, we get these seven tales, which are Vanya's backstory, and they are told like a fairy tale. But the bulk of the narration is Vanya's point of view of like what the hell is happening in that moment okay so let's talk a bit about the goose girl (laughs) so for anyone who doesn't know the goose girl is a fairy tale about a princess and a maid the maid is sick of being a maid and so tricks the princess into switching places with her she then parades around as the princess while the real princess has to tend to the geese and just sounds crazy whenever she tries to convince someone that she's the real princess there's also a talking horse in it <laughs> who gets his head cut off, but it like still talks. Oh. Um, and at the end of that fairy tale, the maid is killed and the princess returns to her rightful place and it's all happily ever after. Cool. In Little Thieves, the tale is slightly different. So Vanya Schmidt is the maid to the princessin, Giselle. For reasons which you find out as you read the seven tales throughout the book, Vanya does take revenge on the princess by stealing her identity. This is helped by an enchanted pearl necklace of Giselle's that makes her look like this perfect image of a princess. So when Vanya wears it, she looks like the Princess Giselle. Right. And her plan is to masquerade as the princess, which allows her access to all these extravagant like estates, you know, when she's invited to parties and stuff, which she then robs as the Pennygeist, the Penny Phantom, called so because she leaves a red penny in the place of the jewels that she robs.
1: That's so creepy.
0: Yeah. She's also, (laughs) as the opening story introduces, the goddaughter of Death and Fortune, who have been asking her to serve one of them for years, but she doesn't want to be in servitude to anyone anymore because she's like, I've been a maid. That was horrible. Don't want to serve you guys. So the plan is, when she's got enough money from being the Penny Phantom, she's going to just run away and be free. The plan gets a little complicated (laughs) for a few reasons. (laughs)
1: I can't see any way that that plan could go wrong, to be honest. Yeah, I know, right?
0: Someone is investigating the Penny Phantom robberies. Right. Giselle is engaged to a very horrible, horrific Margrave, and Vanya gets cursed. Oh. Yeah. for the lead there, am <laughs> Yeah. So I thought I'd read out the scene of her being cursed. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's just robbed a couple called the Eisendorfs. Um, and she's like on her way back to the like her castle or whatever, and her carriage is stopped. And this is what happens. Okay. <laughs> I'm already so invested in this. I can't wait to read this. It's so like it just sounds crazier the more that I talk about it, but I absolutely love it. <laughs> and if I've learned anything, it's that there's only one way to do business with a low god: get it over with as soon as possible. I roll my eyes, peel myself from my nest of fur, and draw my hood up against the cold as I climb out of the coach. Sure enough, an inhuman figure towers in the road outside, wreathed in the forest's mists, perhaps twice as tall as a man. The only reason my escort isn't fleeing is that they don't see her, or anything at all. Every rider, every soldier, every attendant has gone still, their torch flames stuck in place like lanterns of molten glass. That means, whichever low god this is, they're at least powerful enough to halt time a moment. That does not bode well. <laughs> this low god has a bare skull for a head, twin red tinged lights glowing in each eye socket. Two antlers branch from the crest of the skull, their tips blooming into blood red leaves. A strange shadowy sphere floats between them. Long hair falls around the skull, parted perfectly down the middle fading from jet-black roots to snow-white ends and laced with bands of scarlet hemp. Two gaunt human arms thrust from a heap of shifting pelts like ribs from a long-dead corpse jerkin, bone-pale everywhere but the joints, which blush an unnaturally deep crimson. A raven is perched on one of the branch antlers, its eyes also glowing red. Life and death, beast and vine, blood and bone, the teeth of a predator and the horns of prey. The goddess of this forest, then. Of course Eiswald is strong enough to hold time. Her woods reach nearly all the way to the border itself. I curtsy with a bit more sincerity than I had for the junior prefect. Eiswald, what? Silence thief. It's a howl, a hiss, a snarl all in one. Oh, that can't be good. It's lady Eiswald to the likes of you. Did you think you could come into my lands and take whatever you pleased? Did you think you would never pay? Eiswald's voice rises to a shriek. I blink and she suddenly closes the distance, looming taller than even the coach, eyes burning scarlet. Did you think you could steal from mine? I don't know what you're talking about, I gasp, stumbling back. There's a bang. A glittering cloud pours from the open coach door, everything I took from the Isendorfs hanging in midair like hornets. The pewter ring rises above them all, its moonstone shimmering in cold talons. This, Eiswald snaps, this is a token of my protection. It is not yours to take. Isbeta and Gustav don't need your protection, I fire back. Eiswald only gnashes her teeth. Everyone in my woods needs my protection. They make their sacrifices every solstice. They respect the old ways. They respect me. Easy to respect a God. I mutter, thinking of the look on Han's face when Abetza screeched his name. Anyway, your token was just gathering dust in the bottom of a jewellery box. They weren't using it. But they are far from your only trespass, aren't they, little Vanya? The sound of my name knocks any answer from my tongue. For the last year, I've been Martha, Giselle, the Pennygeist. I've not answered to Vanya. I can't remember the last time someone called me by my name. I've forgotten what it feels like. Eiswald pushes closer and I smell night and yarrow and rot. Do not think your godmothers can help you now. Take, take, take. That's all you've done for the last year. Taken whatever you desired. But you have come into my woods tonight and stolen from those under my ward. So now, one pale hand reaches out, knuckles flushed red. My hood falls back on its own, the mink trim coiling round my throat like a noose. I try to move, try to scream, but nothing. I can't even breathe, lungs afire, my sight filling with the coal dust of terrible luck. A burning cold fingertip presses to my cheek, just below my right eye. There's a sharp pain. I will give you a gift, Iswald whispers and glides back. You will have what you want. I suck in a breath like a dagger in the gut. I can move again. My hand flies to my face and catches on something hard, no bigger than the tip of my little finger. Iswell does not have lips to smile with, but the jaws of the bear skull crack a little wider. Torchlight slices along her teeth. Rubies and pearls you shall become, little Vanya, and you will know the price of being wanted. For true greed will do anything to take what... Wait, I strip off my glove and run my bare fingers over whatever she's put on my cheek. It's too rough to be a pearl. Is this real? I as well tries again. To take what it is this a real ruby? I whip out my boot knife and check my dim reflection in the blade. Sure enough, a fat, impeccable, teardrop shaped ruby sits below my right eye. Shit, I breathe, and immediately prod at the stone with the tip of my knife. I could buy five horses with this. True greed, eyes thunders, will do anything to take what it wants. I shoot her a pointed look as the blade scrapes against the ruby, perhaps a little too close to my right eye. Admittedly, cutting gemstones out of my own face is not ideal, but five horses. Do you mind? I'm trying to concentrate. But no matter how I chisel at the jewel, it won't move, as if it's grown right out of my cheekbone. Eiswald knocks the knife aside anyway, seizing my chin in a grip that makes me squirm. Out of respect for your godmothers, I give you one more gift. Pass, I grind out. You have until the full moon to make up for what you have stolen, Eiswald growls. The longer you take, the more your greed will overtake you, until it is all you are. The thing about the low gods is that they're inordinately fond of talking like a book of doomsday prophecies. You could ask Fortune about the weather and she'd say something like, the wind's loyalty skews, the veil lifts, and that would mean the rain will clear out by Tuesday. The only way to get a straight answer from them is to spell it out first. So I'm going to keep breaking out in gemstones. By the full moon, you will be gemstones and nothing more. The only way to save yourself is to shed your greed and make amends for what I took. Right, I heard you the first time.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love yeah. that the book is sarcastic about fairy tales. Yeah. And so good at being one. Yeah, well exactly. done.
0: I know, it's genius. <laughs> um, so, yeah, weird curse. She starts breaking out in gemstones. The dream, to be honest. <laughs> but you can't take them off you. Yeah, but so. you're
1: just going to cut about being sparkly.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit more painful than that, but yeah.
1: <laughs> um, I'm going to have to die. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
0: It's our good way to go. Exactly maybe.
1: <laughs> I love how I just said F. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is uncertain.
0: <laughs> so yeah, obviously what we just said, like I think from this quote you can see the start of the humour of the book and I won't lie, most of the quotes I've picked out today are just because they made me laugh mm. and they made me like fall in love with the characters in the world. So speaking of i now have a series of quotes about character emmerich conrad the ensemble cast of this book is incredible especially Eiswald's child who is a shapeshifter called ragna she was the raven right. that was sat on her antlers <laughs> um, and she appears as lots of like other animals as well and as a human and i do have little mentions of her coming up however most of my favorite passages are about emmerich because Vanya's narration is incredible when talking about him. Like, I fully laughed at many descriptions (laughs) of him. So I'm just going to read out his introduction, and then I'll explain more about who he is. Okay. (laughs) So this is still back at, like, the party that she robbed at the start of the book. Okay. The small crowd draws back to make a path for the prefect as the messenger calls out, My friends, I give you Prefect Hubert Clemens... Junior Prefect, the voice from the entryway is muffled by layers upon layers of wool and fur, but it still reaches us clearly enough to stop the courier mid-sentence, probably because it sounds a good deal younger than any of us expected. A moment later, a doorman helps the Prefect, Junior Prefect, out of his cloak and scarf. It's like popping an olive pit from the flesh. What looks like a bear of a man is abruptly whittled down to a scarecrow of a boy no more than 18. His dark-wheel jacket sits loose on his shoulders, a uniform that belongs on someone... bulkier. What I can see of a grey waistcoat and dark breeches seem to fit marginally better, though that's a low bar to clear. His black hair is cut short like a commoner's, but parted on the side and combed as neatly as any noble's. All in all, he gives the impression of a collection of billiard cues that unionise to solve crimes. (laughs) From what little I remember of my brothers, this boy looks precisely like someone they would have thrown into the pig pen for fun. The effect is only magnified when he fishes in a breast pocket, removes a set of round spectacles and places them on his pale, narrow face. Junior Prefect Emmerich Conrad at your service, the boy says, blinking his dark eyes owlishly. Then he seems to recall he's not in the free imperial states anymore and adds a nervous, sir. (laughs) Oh, a collection of billiard cues that unionizes the crimes. <laughs> it's so good. So yeah, so Emric is a junior prefect of the godly courts. So he is essentially a detective for the low gods, such as like death and fortune. Right. So he can investigate crimes, gather evidence, and then present that evidence to the low gods, and they render whatever judgment they decide. That's pretty cool. From there, Emric is investigating the Penny Phantom. Right. Vanya. So I have a very entertaining passage now. Vanya, as Giselle, is being interviewed by Emmerich the day after the theft. He wants to ask her about the Penny Phantom, see if she saw anything at the party. And she decides to throw him off by going into distraction mode. And this is what happens. (laughs) Send the prefect up to my personal parlour, I say, and get him breakfast, same as what I'm having take my tray there too. Then I scan my breakfast. It's missing the final touch. And one more thing. Two minutes later, I stroll into my guest parlour only marginally more put together than when I woke up. I've done slippers and pulled my hair back into a positively devilish tail dripping down one shoulder, but all I'm wearing is a rich scarlet brocade dressing gown bundled over the nightgown. It's heavy enough that I'm not worried about letting anything slip. It's still wildly inappropriate. A young princessin has no business receiving guests in her nightclothes, especially a young princessin about to marry the ruler of the largest march in southern Almanday. Granted, the pearls don't work the same on everyone, and I didn't want to take for granted that the good prefect would have that sort of interest in women, let alone anyone. But judging by the vaguely terrified transfection of Emmerich Conrad as he stares from the table set for two, he is still far, far from immune. He nearly knocks over his chair, bolting to his feet, then jerks into a stiff bow. Princess Giselle, I... Is it to your liking? I glide into my own seat and let the question dangle a moment before flicking my hand at the spread of soft brown pretzels and pumpernickel, fans of sliced cheese, pools of spiced applesauce and sweet mustard. Your breakfast, that is. (laughs) Emmerich gapes a little too long, taking in the ruby the dressing gown, the nightgown under the dressing gown, and finally catches himself. He half sits, half wilts into his chair, then fusses about his oversized uniform jacket and extracts his little notebook and charcoal stick with excruciating effort, the charcoal's paper wrap crinkling beneath unsteady fingers. I, erm, it's very kind of you, princessin. If you would not mind, I would like to... He's interrupted by a knock at the door. Come in, I call Emmerich clears his throat. I would like to. The parlor door swings open to admit a man bearing a sizzling platter of long, fat, extremely suggestive red sausages. <laughs> they wobble scandalously as he sets the platter down between me and Emmerich. Your rotwurst, m'lady. Divine. I reach over and gleefully spear one on my fork. Emmerich drops his charcoal stick. <laughs> I wave the rotwurst in his direction, its crispy skin crackling with pork grease. A favourite in Sovabon reminds me of home. I see, Emmerich's voice cracks, conspicuously. This is the part where I must admit that I have no idea what to do with someone's personal rotwurst. I mean, I've heard plenty of gossipy details and dirty jokes, and Janiza explains the mechanics when I was the proper age. I would even say there's some appeal in the idea, at least with the right person but I've had different priorities even longer than I've had an interest in, well, Rotwurst, and those priorities come first. Which means I'm not quite sure what message Giselle is about to send per poor junior Emmerich Conrad this morning, only that his ears are turning very red and he looks both fascinated and deeply, deeply concerned when I deposit the sausage between the applesauce and the pretzel on my plate.
1: Outstanding.
0: And I just need to skip ahead a few pages to read, like, one more line, because... It's like the icing on the cake, and then I jam my fork into the rotwurst, lift the whole thing, and take a hearty, vicious bite off the end, staring Junior Prefect Emmerich Conrad dead in the eye as grease rolls down my chin. Oh, he says very faintly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just joyous. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> So, yeah, without giving too much away, Emmerich isn't really like the bumbling, weedy guy that he presents himself as. He does constantly get flustered by Vanya, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is very clever. He knows how to manipulate people to get the answers that he needs. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that he pretty quickly works out she's the penny phantom. Like, he already knew this at this point. Right. <laughs> but they have to work together for reasons. And so we enter into like the perfect slow burn. Well, they, want the they, enemies, lovers storyline. Yep. So I have two more. I'm so sorry, I have so many quotes. I have two more examples of Emmerich being utterly frustrated by Vanya. The first also features Ragna, who's that little crow, crow creature that I was talking about because I had to get her in. So the context you need to know for this is that Vanya had Emmerich dropped into a river earlier. Right. Ragna scooped him out though. And this is a bit after that.
1: Every single time I hear about someone getting, like, put in a river, I think of that Gilmore <laughs> Girls scene where Luke, <laughs> oh, yeah. where Luke pushes Jess into the river. Yeah. <laughs> and it just brings me
0: joy. Anyway. I know. So he's just, like, ran into Vanya at one point. Okay. <laughs> the moment he lets go of my arm, Ragnus swoops between us as a raven, then abruptly shifts to human. Hello again. <laughs> Emmerich's chin snaps up as he diverts his gaze skyward, ears burning pink. Uh, Hello? Clothing, Ragna, we've had this conversation. Throw my shawl over her. It's long enough to cover the essentials. There. Emmerich is still avoiding too close a look, but a flicker of curiosity darts through his face. Wait, aren't you the girl who pushed me to shore? The Vanya sent me, Ragna says brightly. Emmerich blinks at me, startled, only to sour when Ragna adds, I was only supposed to save your bag. There it is, he mutters. (laughs) I wanted to say hello again ragna continues smiling very toothily and to tell you it's my job to look after the vanya even though she is mean if you hurt her i will turn myself into a bear and kill you that's all goodbye she leaps into the air in a rush of feathers and alights on a nearby rooftop as a raven iswald's daughter i explain wrapping the shawl around myself once more so you know death is only a rooftop away might want to bear that in mind I didn't think it was possible for Emmerich to dislike me more than when I tried to drown him. But by all the saints and martyrs, I think I've pulled it off. He gives me a look of pure loathing and carries on as if imminent death by bear is nothing new.
1: (laughs) Huge fan of Ragnar. Oh, Ragnar's amazing. (laughs) She's, oh, she's so good. So good. She's giving me Janet from the Good Place vibes i don't
0: know if you want yeah she is and because also you know how like the thing with janet is like she has to learn what like human emotions are Mm -hmm. that's very much (laughs) ragna as well okay so my other passage of emmerich and vanya interaction is this um there is a ball on and they're sneaking away to snoop in someone's room for reasons once they walk in emmerich ducks out heading down the hall. I fall into step behind him, only to realise as his head swivels that he doesn't know I'm there. We make it almost to the vestibule before he stops and fishes the pewter coin out of his pocket. I whisper, boo. I didn't know it was possible to make a vertical leap all the way onto a staircase landing, but Emmerich proves me wrong. After he's done swearing at me, I observe, you know an awful lot of big boy no-no words for a man of the gods. You are an absolute terror. He snaps. At this point, I'm frankly amazed nothing else cursed you before now. I shrug. Who's to say they haven't tried? Come on, we've got half an hour at most. He grumbles, but follows me to a tapestry tastefully obscuring a doorway that blends right into the masonry. It leads us into the servant corridors, where it takes a moment for my eyes to adjust to the dim. The torches are spaced farther than in the normal halls, just sufficient to navigate by, and no more. Emmerich catches my shoulder his voice drops to a whisper. Wait, do you hear? We're not alone, I tell him, heading down the narrow passage. Don't worry about it. What do you mean we're not? He's cut off by an extremely distinct species of giggle gasp echoing from one of the pathways, splitting off to the right. The shadows cast by distant torchlight lay out an equally distinct explanation. You see, I say gravely, when two people love each other very much, or at least think the other's passable if they squint. Yes, I understand you now, thank you. I can practically hear his blush. You realise if we get caught, that's our excuse, right? I point out. We're just a couple of squirrely youths who got turned around looking for somewhere to, eh, uh, cuddle. Then I'd rather not get caught, he says, grim. I force a laugh as I lead us toward a flight of stairs. That makes two of us. Then I flash his own coin at him. For someone who's supposed to be a highly trained super sleuth, he's awfully easy to pickpocket. What's the deal with this? Special gift from Pappy Clemens. He snatches it out of my hand. Will you please refrain, I pass him his writing charcoal, from robbing me and his makeshift notebook while I'm working. Then he lets out an exasperated sigh. I need my spectacles to see, Miss Schmidt. I'm too busy holding them up to the nearest torch, impressed with how the lenses distort it. No kidding, near sighted, that seems appropriate. You're the first to make that joke, he says with absolutely no sincerity, plucking them from my hands. They also let me see things like enchantments, magical traps, and your curse, so it's in both our interests to leave them on my face. You didn't say what this is. I toss him his own coin again. It's incredible how he just put it back in the same pocket. <laughs> <laughs> You're an absolute terror. Mm. It's just the vibe. I love it. I want yeah. to inspire that reaction.
1: <laughs> that is my aspiration in every interaction with a man. Yeah. Is... Exactly. <laughs> if you're if they're not saying you're an absolute terror, then you're not having enough fun.
0: <laughs> I'm almost done. <laughs> um, I have a slightly more serious moment to talk about now and then I'm going to end on a more like funny one okay. again because i would like to talk about how trauma is written in this book and which is showing that trauma is not just one thing that happens to you but how an event can like alter your entire psyche and thought process Mm. there are a few things that happen in Vanya's past she's neglected as a child as we saw Mm. from the beginning of the story she has a history of telling the truth but not being believed because she's a servant so her words means nothing she's also sexually assaulted which is not a spoiler, what the traumatic events do to Vanya is make her believe that no one can be trusted, no one will ever trust her, and that's why she becomes a thief, so she can get enough money to run away and escape this life and not have to serve someone or even think about anyone but herself. So we normally don't do spoilers, this passage might be a slight spoiler, it doesn't give away any big plot moments, so it doesn't like ruin the story at all but it is quite far in. Mm. But I just think it's really important. If you don't want spoilers of the relationship variety, which you can probably guess anyway, (laughs) feel free to skip this bit. Say it again. My own voice is shaking. He makes a questioning noise and I feel it in his throat and every inch of me. My name. My face is burning. I'm a mess and a fool, and I don't even care a little. Please. His mouth grazes my ear as he shifts closer. Then he breathes. Vanya. A shiver curves my spine, arches me into him, and I feel the answering curve of Emmerich's smile against my jaw. I'd be embarrassed and annoyed, but I can barely think, even less so when he moves to my cheekbone. Vanya, he says again, and it tastes as sweet to him as to me. I fist my hands in his hair and a shudder sweeps through me. I can't believe I told him how to unravel me like this. Damn him. Damn him. Vanya, he whispers against my mouth, and I am undone. We melt into another kiss, stumbling back until I collide with the plain altar. I find myself swiftly hefted onto it, my back flush to the wall, eye to eye with Emmerich as I pull him against me again. I could get lost on his mouth, in the way his touch makes me feel like a knot, untied. I don't know if this is love like in the ballads, but I'm starting to understand why they write them. His fingers tangle in mine. Then he presses closer, easing our twined hands to the wall. And suddenly, horribly, I can't breathe. It's like when I fell below the waterfall, the memory dragging me under, Adelbrecht pinning my hands, ramming me against a wall too much like this, digging at my bodice like a pig, the humiliation, the terror. I am pinned, helpless, frozen. This is a trap, it isn't real. My feet hit the bottom, the closest thing to a rationalisation. I should have known when he brought up the pearls. It's all a lie, all a trick, and I fell for it. I should have known better. I should have known. I never escaped the trinity of want. I'm not a thing to be loved. I am a thing to be used. I need to get out. I need, I need. I tear a hand free, seize the first of his knives I find. It sings free of its sheath. Candlelight zips along the gold-plated blade as I snap it to his throat. Emmerich goes very still. For a moment, the only sound is both of us struggling for breath. You almost got me, I rasp, bitter as cyanide. I yank my other hand away, then shove myself off the altar as Emmerich reels back. This is just one more narrow escape in the end, a reason, the cruelest trap I've evaded, and I speak the language perfectly. You almost... No wonder I'm not part of the plan. The amnesty's a, a fake. You are going to arrest me here, today. Emmerich takes another step away from me, hands half raised between us like he can't decide whether to keep me at a distance or show he's unarmed. His lips part, still flushed. Something awful flickers in his eyes, almost like grief. His voice is so quiet I barely hear it. I gave you my word. No, no, my fear is never wrong. It can't be wrong. Distantly, I remember sitting together in the alcove the night of the ball, the strain in his voice when he said he can't fake anything like this. He had no reason to lie then. He has no reason to lie now. I can't be wrong about him. I can't be. Because if I am, I found someone I cared for. Someone who knew my scars. Someone who cared for a girl like me. And when he bared his throat to me, I answered with a knife. I made sure he will never trust me, never touch me again. I can't be wrong my fear can't be wrong. Nothing stolen is ever mine, but there's another truth on the other side of that coin. What is mine can always be stolen. I will not be anyone's servant, not even my own. I will always be a thief. I'm never going to let myself be happy. I'm always, always going to steal it from myself. I press my fists over my eyes. Panic roars through me, and I cannot keep the tide at bay. I'm falling through shame and terror. I'm a fool. I can't do anything right. I will always be haunted by myself. The golden knife clatters to the floor. This was a mistake, I say brokenly. Then I shove past Emmerich, seize my cloak, and do what I should have done in the first place. Run. Oof. Sad. It's very sad. But I think that's such an amazing way of talking about Trauma. Especially from sexual assault. Bearing in mind that this is a YA mm. book, because it's very sad. But I think the overwhelming feeling you get isn't an annoyance at Vanya for quote-unquote ruining the moment, mm. but a real like ache and pity for her. I think Owen writes it so well. Like the way that you can be enjoying your life one second, and then one tiny thing, can like trigger a memory, and you experience all those feelings all over again. Mm-hmm. And for Vanya, that's obviously Emmerich like, taking her hands and putting them up against the wall because this motion, which like should be pretty hot, mm-hmm. is in which Emmerich is not doing in a forceful way, mm-hmm. sends her spiralling into this feeling of helplessness, which Vanya only knows how to react to with aggression and fleeing because that's what's
1: worked in the past. I think that bit um, where she's like, I can't be wrong, like yeah. when she realises that she's done it. Yeah, and then she has to continue the narrative. That was so well written. Yeah, the fact like she's like talking herself into it. Into it more because yeah. she's like, if I because it's like then it's worse if she has ruined something.
0: Yeah, I also like that it's very clear that Emmerich isn't being an aggressor or pushy. That what's happening was like an internal issue, mm-hmm. and I just think that's like a great representation of being like traumatized by an experience or at least I think so if I compare it to like anything I've experienced. Um, And like I said, I just think it's an important passage and one that like really made me love the book. Like I loved it for its humor and its story but then I read that and I was like, oh no, that's brilliant though. So yeah, I did say I'd end on a sweeter moment (laughs) because that was a bit heavy. Basically, a big lesson that Vanya learns through the book is that she doesn't have to rely on herself. She obviously gets close to Emmerich and other characters as well, including Ragna, who becomes her friend. Uh-huh. And she mends like some old burned bridges as well. But what I also like about the passage I'm going to read is that it shows that growth doesn't just happen overnight. Okay. Um, so tiny bit of context, Vanya has been through the wars a bit, she's a bit injured for reasons, Her and Emmerich fell out, to put it mildly, and Ragnar is experiencing a human crush for the first time. (laughs) As I slip the key into my door's lock, I spot Emmerich coming around the corner. My stomach clenches. His head flies up and then he picks up his pace, but we both know he can't make a scene with this audience. I hurry inside and close the door behind me. Then I can't help but lean against it, pulling off the pearls and letting out a breath. I'm sick and I hurt everywhere and I'm so tired and I can finally stop pretending I'm not. Quiet footsteps pause by the door. There's a soft brushing sound, like fingertips grazing the wood, and then it passes. I hear the neighbouring door unlock, open, shut. Ragna is sitting on the hearth as a human girl, enclosed for once. She sits up, feet sticking out at odd angles. Hello, you made it. I did. I throw the pearls on the bed and start on my bodice laces. How are you feeling? Awful, I admit, like I had the pox for a week and I fell out of a tree. I flop onto the chest at the foot of the bed as she stands, walks over and pats my head. How are you feeling here? My throat catches. I stop fussing with the laces a moment and say again, awful. To my surprise, Ragnar says, me too. When I look up at her, she fidgets. I like the Giselle very much, but she hurt you again today. And the Emmerich is confusing. I am sad for him, and I am very angry at what he did to you. That really sums it up, I say with a humorous laugh. If it helps, I'm confused too. I trade my fine gown for the first kirtle I see on the floor. Only once I've pulled it over my head, I do realise it's the fur green one from last night when I showed Emmerich the way out. I can't wear this. I go to dig another out of the wardrobe as Ragna sits on the hearth ledge, stands, looks at the veranda, and sits again. She's been jittery since I got back. It takes me a moment to sort out why, and only a heartbeat to think of a solution. Hey, Ragna, I want to make sure everyone's fine at Fortune's Cathedral, but I'm in no shape to leave. Can you go check? Yes, she practically puffs into an owl, only to realise the veranda doorknob needs hands to turn it. I open it for her and let her fly out into the night, unconcerned. I'm not going anywhere feeling this sick, and if Adelbrecht tries anything while she's gone, I have Pauldie. I go back to the wardrobe and rummage around for another kirtle, only to touch strange, heavy wool. It's the coat Emmerich inadvertently left behind a week ago exactly, when he first tried to arrest me. The one with H Clemens stitched into the inside of the collar. My chest tightens. This doesn't belong to me. I... I tell myself I don't want anything of him left in my room. It's an excuse. I know it's an excuse, but it's enough for my pride. I fold it automatically, tucking it under an arm, then stop before I reach the bedroom door. Regardless of the wolfhunden hiding among the guards, there's no good excuse to send Giselle's maid over to Emmerich's room to return his clothing. Even if I come up with a rose, I'd still have to talk to him. I head for the veranda instead. I'll just drop it off on his railing, knock on a door and get out before he can answer. Outside, it's the kind of frigid that shocks the breath from your lungs. The only upside is it numbs my throbbing ankle a little as I climb onto the trellis and shimmy my way to Emmerich's veranda. I'm focusing too hard on keeping the coat clenched at my side and on not putting too much weight on my bad foot to notice my mistake until after I've knocked the snow off his balustrade and started to lever myself over. Last night, he left the sheer inner curtains drawn across the veranda door in the windows. Tonight, they've been pushed aside. That means I have a crystal clear view of Emmerich bent over the wash basin near the door, spectacles hooked on the back of the mirror, splashing water onto his face. These are the three things I notice, in the order that I notice them. First, his shirt is… well, it's not there. That is, I mean, it's not on him where it should be, it's been tossed over the desk chair. This is all very confusing. Second, he's not exactly built like a fortress, but with his shirt off, he looks drastically less like a gawky academic and more like a boy who's ended a few fights himself. He's got respectable scattering of scars, enough to veer dangerously close to unrespectable. He even has a tattoo over his heart, something I wouldn't have believed if I wasn't seeing it with my own eyes. If I had enough time, I could read stories in his marks like I do with everything else I'm not meant to see. But I don't have enough time, because the third thing I notice is this. He's been crying again. I know this because his eyes are red. And I notice that because even without his spectacles, he's staring dead at me, dripping water all over the carpet. An agonising beat passes as we gape at each other. Then he bursts out of the door and onto the veranda. I fling the coat directly into his face and hurl myself back at the trellis. Through the wool, I still hear a muffled. Wait! Nope, I say, clinging to the trellis. Too cold, good night.
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> mid um, though. I know. <laughs> I know. I Here's you. your coat bite.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I promise I'm starting to wrap up now. I have gone on for so long. I love it. Um, I've here for it. So yeah, I just want to shout out the absolute beauty of a cover that this book has. I fully judged this book by a cover and bought it without knowing any of the plot. I have the Illumicrate edition, which I bought second-hand, and it is beautifully illustrated by Margaret Owen herself. I know you guys can't see, but it's very pretty. It has Vanya hiding from a bewildered Emmerich on the front (laughs) and the rest of the cast on the back. But yeah, it looks like an old fairy tale book. It does. Um, And I'm trying to work out exactly how to display it because I want this Mm. out. Yeah, I want the cover with Vanya and Emmerich on show. I'm going to link to Margaret Owen's Instagram in the show notes because you can get a good look of it there and other drawings that she's done of her characters. She just draws them quite a lot. I'm like, that's cool. That is cool. And all of the illustrations inside the book are by her too because it is also illustrated.
1: Oh, that's through. cool.
0: So yeah, as you can tell, I adored this book. It's hilarious, it's clever. It made me cry. <laughs> um even though I gave a little bit of a spoiler, I promise. I have barely scratched the surface, there are countless plot twists. You get literary whiplash in like, the best way. I really recommend picking it up because I've not seen anyone talking about it, so I would love it if more people did. And it's going to have a sequel, which I'm very intrigued about because this arc definitely comes to a close. Okay. But she did leave a couple threads loose and it's out next year, titled Painted Devils. And I saw Owen say, (laughs) "This is a quote. It involves accidental cults, awkward road trips, and virgin sacrifices. Except we're taking a big swan dive into virginity as a construct. It's a great time for everyone. Well, some people, maybe." (laughs) (laughs) So that sounds pretty wild. Yeah, Um, I
1: like the sound of this lady.
0: Yeah, she's really she's really funny. Like I follow her on Twitter now, and it's great. She was doing a lot of Bridgerton tweets, which were very funny. And that is finally me. (laughs) Woo! Well done.
1: (sighs) What are you infatuated (laughs) with? My God. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, don't be sorry. It was great. I just am, like, genuinely impressed. (laughs) I (laughs) am also going to talk for a long time. So enjoy this, anyone that's made it Um, to me, because you're not done yet. Yep. I am infatuated with My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. I also judged this book by the cover, I just liked the colours on yeah, it. Yeah, it's cool. And I had no idea about it, but I don't know how I've missed it <laughs> because it was an international number one bestseller when it was published in 2012. There was an HBO adaptation of it which came out in 2018 that I didn't know about, mm. and it's the first of four books which are known as the Neapolitan Quartet. And it's apparently a really big deal. So I see. I did not know anything about it,
0: but I'm delighted to know about it now. I think I've seen it on TikTok, but I couldn't have told you what it was about. I think I've ju- I just recognised the cover. So
1: <laughs> Well, yeah, It's it says on the front, the Guardian review is nothing quite like it has ever been published. And I am inclined to believe that. Mm. The Neapolitan Quartet follows a cast of characters from a neighbourhood in Naples. They're all introduced in this first book. But what I want to show you, that obviously people won't be able to see, but it has like an actual cast. Oh, I like, like a Like a Greek tragedy. Yeah. Because there's so many families. Okay. It's so good. And the quartet, I think, spans several decades. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty epic. It's a pretty epic undertaking. Yeah. Um, but before I even get to telling you about the book, I need to tell you about the author. Because okay. that's maybe a more epic story. Okay. So Elena Ferrante is one of the coolest authors of our time because nobody knows who she is. <laughs> so, Fran is obviously a pseudonym and she does give interviews, but it's like email only or through her publisher, right? There have been multiple like academic and sort of vigilante investigations and speculations mm. about her identity. Yeah. And in 2016, one journalist like did a massive deep dive And claimed to have proven that it was a rome based translator called Anita Raja. But what I love about this is that that journalist was crucified Mm. by the literary community for invading the privacy of Elena Ferrante. Yeah. Because even though she's not known, she's so revered for these books. Yeah. And I just love that a whole community of like book nerds has collectively went, Shh, we don't want to know. Yeah. Just leave it alone. Yeah. And, like, preserve the mystery. I love that. I love that that has happened. Mm -hmm. Like, collectively, the whole literary world just went, what did you do that for? (laughs) Like, shut up. (laughs) Yeah. So, basically, whether it's Anita Raja or not, nobody cares. The reason that they think that it is her is that for a while there was speculation that it was her husband. Right. Who is also a writer in his own right. And the styles are very similar and all that. And she is a translator, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, yeah, no one cares. Whoever Elena Ferrante is, I respect that she's, like, in the wind. (laughs) (laughs) But to get on to the book, My Brilliant Friend, as I've said, is the first of four books, and it's written from the point of view of Elena Greco, who has grown up in post-war Naples. And, as the title might suggest, My Brilliant Friend, it's just recounting her relationship with her childhood friend, Lila. And, Emily, I am about to go... English class here because I have got points okay I'm excited so (laughs) I want to start as you have by reading the prologue because I think given that this is a set up for four books this might be one of the most genius prologues I've ever read okay it's called Eliminating All the Traces (laughs) this morning Reno telephoned I thought he wanted money again and I was ready to say no but that was not the reason for the phone call his mother was gone Since when? Since two weeks ago. And you're calling me now? My tone must have seemed hostile, even though I wasn't angry or offended. There was just a touch of sarcasm. He tried to respond, but he did so in an awkward, muddled way, half in dialect, half in Italian. He said that he was sure his mother was wandering around Naples as usual. Even at night? You know how she is. I do. But does two weeks of absence seem normal? Yes. You haven't seen her for a while, Elena. She's gotten worse. She's never sleepy. She comes in, goes out, does what she likes. Anyway, in the end, he had started to get worried. He had asked everyone, made the rounds of the hospitals. He'd even gone to the police. Nothing. His mother wasn't anywhere. What a good son. A large man, 40 years old, who hadn't worked in his life, just a small time crook and a spendthrift. I could imagine how carefully he had done his searching. Not at all. He had no brain. "'and in his heart he had only himself. "'She's not with you?' he asked suddenly. "'His mother, here in Turin. "'He knew the situation perfectly well. "'He was speaking only to speak. "'Yes, he liked to travel. "'He had come to my house at least a dozen times "'without being invited. "'His mother, whom I would have welcomed with pleasure, "'had never left Naples in her life. "'I answered, no, she's not with me. "'You're sure? "'Reno, please. "'I told you she's not here. "'Then where has she gone?' He began to cry and I let him act out his desperation, sobs that began fake and became real. When he stopped I said, please for once behave as she would like, don't look for her. What do you mean? Just what I said. It's pointless. Learn to stand on your own two feet and don't call me again either. I hung up. Reno's mother is named Raffaella Cerullo, but everyone has always called her Lena. Not me, I've never used either her first name or her last. To me, for more than 60 years, she's been Lila. If I were to call her Lena or Rafaela, suddenly, like that, she would think our friendship was over. It's been at least three decades since she told me that she wanted to disappear without leaving a trace, and I'm the only one who knows what she means. She never had in mind any sort of flight, a change of identity, the dream of making a new life somewhere else. And she never thought of suicide repulsed by the idea that reno would have to do anything with her body and be forced to attend to the details she meant something different she wanted to vanish she wanted every one of her cells to disappear nothing of her ever to be found and since i know her well or at least i think i know her i take it for granted that she has found a way to disappear to leave not so much as a hair anywhere in this world days passed i looked at my email at my regular mail. But not with any hope. I often wrote to her and she almost never responded. This was her habit. She preferred the telephone or long nights of talk when I went to Naples. I opened my drawers, the metal boxes where I keep all kinds of things. Not much there. I've thrown away a lot of stuff, especially anything that had to do with her, and she knows it. I discovered that I have nothing of hers. Not a picture, not a note, not a little gift. I was surprised myself. Is it possible that in all those years she left me nothing of herself? Or worse, that I didn't want to keep anything of her? It is. This time I telephoned Reno. I did it unwillingly. He didn't answer on the house phone or on his cell phone. He called me in the evening, when it was convenient. He spoke in the tone of voice he uses to arouse pity. I saw that you called. Do you have any news? No. Do you? Nothing. He rambled incoherently. He wanted to go on TV, on the show that looks for missing persons, make an appeal, ask his mamma's forgiveness for everything, beg her to return. I listened patiently, then asked him, Did you look in her closet? What for? Naturally, the most obvious thing would never occur to him. Go and look. He went, and he realised there was nothing there. Not one of his mother's dresses, summer or winter. Only old hangers. I sent him to search the whole house. Her shoes were gone. The few books, gone. All the photographs, gone. The movies, gone. Her computer had disappeared, including the old-fashioned diskettes and everything. Everything to do with her experience as an electronics wizard who had begun to operate computers in the late 60s, in the days of punch cards. Reno was astonished. I said to him, take as much time as you want, but then call and tell me if you found even a single hairpin that belongs to her. He called the next day, greatly agitated. There's nothing. Nothing at all. No. She cut herself out of all the photographs of the two of us, even those from when I was little. You looked carefully, everywhere. Even in the cellar, I told you, everywhere. And the box with her papers is gone. I don't know, old birth certificates, telephone bills, receipts. What does it mean? Did someone steal everything? What are they looking for? What do they want from my mother and me? I reassured him. I told him to calm down. It was unlikely that anyone wanted anything, especially from him. Can I come and stay with you for a while? No. Please, I can't sleep. That's your problem, Marino. I don't know what to do about it. I hung up, and when he called back, I didn't answer. I sat down at my desk. Lila is overdoing it as usual, I thought. She was expanding the concept of trace out of all proportion. She wanted not only to disappear herself, now, at the age of 66, but also to eliminate the entire life that she'd left behind. I was really angry. We'll see who wins this time, I said to myself. I turned on the computer and began to write all the details of our story, everything that still remained in my memory. Whoa. That's not where I saw this story going. No, <laughs> No, it's not where I saw it going when I opened the book either. Yeah. I love this prologue. <laughs> Because A, it's like an amazing mystery. Yeah. I love the vengeance. Mm -hmm. um, But it it covers also so much of what the whole book goes on to explore. So like problematic annoying men. Mm -hmm. Names and the importance of them are Mm -hmm. like come up a lot in this book. Memory and like stories and the idea of trying to take yourself out of the past. is like a theme that comes up over and over and over. And then most importantly, the fine line between love and hate. Between Elena and Lila. Because I don't know about you, but I thought that was like a really weird reaction to Mm -hmm. have to your friend go and miss it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to go on to talk about those things. (laughs) Cool. So, something that you need to know about Elena and Lila's friendship is as you might expect from the title, Elena does idolise Lila, my brilliant friend, Mm -hmm. although the title is quite misleading um, in a clever way. Mm -hmm. but here is a quick wee paragraph from near the start that I think really sums up the dynamic of their friendship this is when they're about I want to say about 12 maybe a bit younger Mm -hmm. Lila too at a certain point had seemed very beautiful to me in general I was the pretty one while she was skinny like a salted anchovy she gave off an odour of wildness she had a long face narrow at the temples framed by two bands of smooth black hair But when she decided to vanquish both Alfonso and Enzo, she had lighted up like a holy warrior. Her cheeks flushed, the sign of a flame released by every corner of her body. And for the first time I thought, Lila is prettier than I am. So I was second in everything. And I hoped that no one would ever realise it. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, Like, Lila's super smart. Like, insanely clever. Mm -hmm. And then, but it's always when they're really little... Uh, Elena's okay with that because Elena's pretty smart, but she's also like nice and kind and pretty and all those things. And then Lila starts to become all of those things too. Mm, I see. But one thing that I love about this book is that because it spans a lot of years, from I think it goes from when the girls are about 6 to 16 Mm -hmm. in this first one, you see Elena's narrative voice growing up with her because obviously it's told in flashback, Mm -hmm. but you get the child coming through. Right. So this is... From a really early episode in their friendship. Lila's such a weak cow by the <laughs> way. <laughs> but yeah, I love the language in this. Lila appeared in my life in first grade and immediately impressed me because she was very bad. In that class we were all a little bad, but only when the teacher, Maestro Oliviero, couldn't see us. Lila on the other hand was always bad. Once she tore up some blotting paper into little pieces, dipped the pieces one by one in the inkwell and then fished them out with her pen and threw them at us. I was hit twice in the hair and once on my white collar. The teacher yelled as she knew how to do, in a voice like a needle, long and pointed, which terrorised us, and ordered her to go and stand behind the blackboard in punishment. Lila didn't obey and didn't even seem frightened. She just kept throwing around pieces of inky paper. So Maestra Oliviero, a heavy woman who seemed very old to us, although she couldn't have been much over 40, came down from the desk, threatening her. The teacher stumbled, it wasn't clear on what, lost her balance and fell, striking her face against the corner of the desk. She lay on the floor as if dead. What happened right afterwards I don't remember. I remember only the dark bundle of the teacher's motionless body and Lila staring at her with a serious expression. I have in my mind so many incidents of this type. We lived in a world in which children and adults were often wounded. Blood flowed from the wounds, they festered, and sometimes people died. One of the daughters of Signora Assunta, the fruit and vegetable seller, had stepped on a an nail and died of tetanus. Signora Spagnolo's youngest child had died of croup. A cousin of mine, at the age of twenty, had gone one morning to move some rubble and that night was dead, crushed, the blood pouring out of his ears and mouth. My f- mother's father had been killed when he fell from a scaffolding at a building site. The father of Signor Peluso was a missing an arm, the lathe he had caught him unawares. The sister of Giuseppina, Signor Peluso's wife, had died of tuberculosis at 22. The oldest son of Don Achille, I had never seen him and yet I seemed to remember him, had gone to war and died twice, drowned in the Pacific Ocean then eaten by sharks. The entire Melchiori family had died clinging to each other, screaming with fear in a bombardment. Old Signorina Clorinda. Had died inhaling gas instead of air. Giannino, who was in fourth grade when we were in first, had died one day because he'd come across a bomb and touched it. luigina Gina, with whom we had played in the courtyard, or maybe not, she was only a name, had died of typhus. Our world was like that, full of words that killed. Crope, tetanus, typhus, gas, war, lathe, rubble, work, bombardment, bomb, tuberculosis, infection. With these words and those years, I bring back the many fears that accompanied me all my life. You could also die of things that seemed normal. You could die, for example, if you were sweating and then drank cold water from the tap without first bathing your wrists. You'd break out in red spots. You'd start coughing and be unable to breathe. You could die if you ate black cherries and didn't spit out the pits. You could die if you chewed American gum and inadvertently swallowed it. You could die if you banged your temple. The temple in particular was a fragile place, we were all careful about it. Being hit with a stone could do it, and throwing stones was the norm. When we left school, a gang of boys from the countryside, led by a kid called Enzo, or Enziusho, was one of the children of Asunta, the fruit and vegetable seller, began to throw rocks at us. They were angry because we were smarter than them. When the rocks came at us, we ran away, except Lila, who kept walking at her regular pace and sometimes even stopped. She was very good at studying the trajectory of the stones and dodging them with an easy move that today I would call elegant. She had an older brother and maybe she had learned from him, I don't know. I also had brothers, but they were younger than me and from them I had learned nothing. Still, when I realised that she had stayed behind, I stopped to wait for her, even though I was scared. Already there was something that kept me from abandoning her. I didn't know her well, we had never spoken to each other, although we were constantly competing in class and outside of it. But in a confused way, I felt that if I ran away with the others, I would leave her with something of mine that she would never give back.
0: Ooh, that was a very disturbing passage. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it was. But do you not think that that is what it is like when you're a child? Yeah. Yeah. Like, everything about death and, like, ghoulishness... Mm is very fascinating Mm -hmm. and i don't know about you but i spend lots of time thinking about that when i was little well i like like all these words when
0: you're school as well there's always like a story about someone who like fell at that bit of the playground Mm -hmm. or someone who like like their head caught on that bit like of what like we had like a bar like bars on some of our windows and i remember someone my friends like jumped like near it and like caught her head on it and had to get stitches in her head and then that was like a story yeah like and it's like loads of things like that
1: yeah yeah and I just think like that bit like obviously there's all the very real death things yeah and then and then you have her like you could die if you ate black cherries and didn't spit out the It's like all those rumors that you hear when you're little yeah I just think it's amazing it It like made it made me like nostalgic and I was like oh wow I didn't even remember when I used to think like that but now I remember it no that's really true actually But also, like, those short sentences, like, huge statements like, Lila was very bad. Mm, mm. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) that's such a childlike thing to say. But then if we go forward a few years to their early adolescence, we have, again, the whole fixation is Lila, but I think this is a much, this shows how much they've grown up, this Mm -hmm. discussion of Lila. On December 31st of 1958, Lila had her first episode of Dissolving Margins. The term isn't mine, she always used it. She said that on those occasions, the outlines of people and things suddenly dissolved, disappeared. That night, on the terrace where we were celebrating the arrival of 1959, when she was abruptly struck by that sensation, she was frightened and kept it to herself, still unable to name it. It was only years later, one night in November 1980, we were 36, were married, had children, that she recounted in detail what had happened to her then, what still happened to her. And she had used that term for the first time. We were outside on the roof terrace of one of the apartment buildings in the neighbourhood. Although it was very cold we were wearing light low-cut dresses so that we would appear attractive. We looked at the boys who were cheerful, aggressive, dark figures carried away by the party, the food, the sparkling wine. They were setting off fireworks to celebrate the new year, a ritual in which, as I will explain later, Lila had had a large role so that now she felt content watching the streaks of fire in the sky. But suddenly, she told me, in spite of the cold, she had begun to sweat. It seemed to her that everyone was shouting too loudly and moving too quickly. The sensation was accompanied by nausea, and she had had the impression that something absolutely material, which had been present around her and around everyone and everything forever, but imperceptible, was breaking down the outlines of persons and things and revealing itself. Her heart had started beating uncontrollably. She had begun to feel horror at the cries emerging from the throats of all those who were moving about on the terrace amid the smoke, amid the explosions, as if the sound obeyed new, unknown laws. Her nausea increased, the dialect had become unfamiliar, the way our wet throats bathed the words in the liquid of saliva was intolerable. A sense of repulsion had invested all the bodies in movement, their bone structure, the frenzy that shook them. How poorly made we are, she had thought, how insufficient. The broad shoulders, the arms, the legs, the ears, noses, eyes seemed to her attributes of monstrous beings who had fallen from some corner of the black sky. And the disgust, who knows why, was concentrated in particular on her brother Reno, the person who was closest to her, the person she loved most. She seemed to see him for the first time as he really was. A squat animal form, thick-set, the loudest, the fiercest, the greediest, the meanest. The tumult of her heart had overwhelmed her. She felt as if she were suffocating. Too smoky, too foul smelling too much flashing fire in the cold. Lila had tried to calm herself. She had said to herself, I need to seize the stream that's passing through me. I have to throw it out from me. But at that point she had heard, among the shouts of joy, a kind of final detonation, and something like the breath of a wingbeat that had passed her by. Someone was shooting not rockets and firecrackers, but a gun. Her brother Reno was shouting unbearable obscenities in the direction of the yellow flashes. On the occasion when she told me that story, Lila also said that the sensation she called dissolving margins, although it had come on her distinctly only that once, wasn't completely new to her. For example, she had often had the sensation of moving, for a few fractions of a second, into a person or a thing or a number or a syllable, violating its edges. And the day her father threw her out the window, she had felt absolutely certain as she was flying towards the asphalt that small, very friendly reddish animals were were dissolving the composition of the street, transforming it into smooth, soft material. But that New Year's Eve, she had perceived for the first time unknown entities that broke down the outline of the world and demonstrated its terrifying nature. This had deeply shaken her. Whoa. So... (laughs) mental illness <laughs> yes. is a thing in this book Yes, and I think what I love about it is that obviously this all takes place in like the 50s mm. so Lila would not have had the vocabulary yeah, yeah. to describe that and that's why she doesn't even try until the 80s yeah. but I just think that we come to understand here that obviously Lila isn't bad and the badness that younger Elena detected is, like, troubled. Mm -hmm. And this is Elena realising that about Lila. And I actually hadn't realised until I read those passages out side by side, but obviously the first one is so about, like, the physical, and this is Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. like, internal. Yeah. And I feel like that is the shift that happens from when they go from, obviously, little to grown up. Yeah. But yeah, I just, mental health isn't explicitly talked about in this novel, but I think there is quite Something quite powerful in describing mental ill health without a sight. Like, it's really specific. It's not got, like, vague words that they would sometimes use in a period novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it'd be, like, a fever or, like, a funny turn or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, she's completely described the sensation, but she doesn't know what it is. Yeah. And the fact that Lila has the words uh, dissolving margins and that she's told them to Elena years after shows... Obviously, the maturing of their relationship, mm-hmm. but it's also the maturing of society, right? Because yeah, yeah. Like, society's knowing more. Um, and that is a parallel that's drawn quite a lot in these books because the girls do constantly fixate on society becoming better and then kind of like they think they've got a much bigger role in that than what right. they do. Okay. They exaggerate their role in society becoming better. I see. And they like also exaggerate that society becoming better is for them. Okay. Um, uh-huh. Which I think is quite a adolescent thing to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the way that they do that... Oh, man. I need to... I, I've really missed English studies. <laughs> the way that they do that is through three main symbols in the book for success. Okay. And those three main symbols are books, shoes, and husbands. Right. So I'm going to read some passages about those. Okay. So, yeah, when they're younger, like below ten they fixate on books as a way to make a way in the world. Meanwhile, however, with the money from Donna Kelly, she bought a book, Little Women. She decided to buy it because she already knew it and liked it hugely. Maestra Oliviero, in fourth grade, had given the smarter girls books to read. Lila had received Little Women, along with the following comment, This is for older girls, but it will be good for you and I got the book Heart by Edmondo Amescas, with not a word of explanation. Lila read both Little Women and Heart in a very short time, and said there was no comparison. In her opinion, Little Women was wonderful. I hadn't managed to read it. I had had a hard time finishing Heart before the time set by the teacher for returning it. I was a slow reader. I still am. Lila, when she had to give the book back to Maestra Oliveira regretted both not being able to reread Little Women continuously and not being able to talk about it with me. So one morning she made up her mind. She called me from the street, we went to the ponds, to the place where we had buried the money from Don Killie, in a metal box, took it out, and went to ask Iolanda the stationer, who had displayed in her window forever a copy of Little Women, yellowed by the sun, if it was enough. It was. As soon as we became owners of the book, we began to meet in the courtyard to read it, either silently, one next to the other, or aloud. We read it for months. So many times that the book became tattered and sweat-stained. It lost its spine, came unthreaded, sections fell apart. But it was our book, and we loved it dearly. I was the guardian. I kept it at home among the school books because Lila didn't feel she could keep it at her house. Her father, lately, would get angry if she merely took it out to read. But Reno protected her. When the subject of the admissions test came up, quarrels exploded continuously between him and his father. I'm actually just going to skip ahead a little bit. Basically, the quarrels are, Lila wants to go to school, her family doesn't want to go to school. In that last year of elementary school, wealth became our obsession. We talked about it the way characters in novels talk about searching for treasure. We said, when we're rich, we'll do this, we'll do that. To listen to us, you might think that the wealth was hidden somewhere in the neighbourhood and treasure chests that, when opened, would be gleaming with gold, and were only waiting for us to find them. Then, I don't know why, things changed and we began to link school to wealth. We thought that if we studied hard we would be able to write books, and that the books would make us rich. Wealth was still the glitter of gold coins stored in countless chests, but to get there all you had to do was go to school and write a book. Let's write one together, Lila said once, and that filled me with joy. Maybe the idea took root when she discovered that the author of Little Women had made so much money that she had given some of it to her family. But I wouldn't promise. We argued about it. I said we could start right after the admission test. She agreed, but then she couldn't wait. While I had a lot to study because of the afternoon lessons and the teacher, she was freer. She set to work and wrote a novel without me. I was hurt when she brought it to me to read, but I didn't say anything. In fact, I held in check my disappointment and was full of congratulations. There were ten sheets of graph paper, folded and held together with a dressmaker's pin. It had a cover drawn in pastels and the title, I remember, was The Blue Fairy. How exciting it was, how many difficult words there were. I told her to let the teacher read it. She didn't want to. I begged her, I offered to give it to her. Although she wasn't sure, she agreed. One day, when I was at Maestro Levero's house for a lesson, I took advantage of G... Mm, I can never say his name. <laughs> I'm just going to say Gia, because I can't say the name. Being in the bathroom to take out the Blue Fairy. I said it was a wonderful novel written by Lila, and that Lila wanted her to read it. But the teacher, who for five years had been enthusiastic about everything Lila did, except when she was bad, replied coldly, tell Cerullo that she would do well to study for the diploma instead of wasting time. And although she kept Lila's novel, she left it on the table without even giving it a glance. That attitude confused me. What had happened? Was she angry with Lila's mother? Had her rage extended to Lila herself? Was she upset about the money that the parents of my friend wouldn't give her? I didn't understand. A few days later, I cautiously asked her if she had read The Blue Fairy. She answered in an unusual tone, obscurely, as if only she and I could truly understand. Do you know what the plebs are, Greco? Yes, the people, the tribunes of the plebs, are the Gracchi. The plebs are quite a nasty thing. Yes. And if one wishes to remain a plebeian, he, his children, the children of his children, deserve nothing. Forget Cirulo and think of yourself. Maestra Oliviero never said anything about the Blue Fairy. Lila asked about it a couple of times, then she let it go. She said grimly, as soon as I have time, I'll write another. That one wasn't good. It was wonderful. It was terrible. But she became less lively, especially in class, probably because she realised that the teacher had stopped praising her and sometimes seemed irritated by her excesses of virtuosity. When it came time for the competition at the end of the year, she was still the best, but without her old impudence. At the end of the day, the principal presented, me to, presented to those remaining in the competition, Lila, Gia and me, an extremely difficult problem that he had invented himself. Gia and I struggled in vain. Lila, narrowing her eyes to cracks, applied herself. She was the last to give up. She said, with a timidity unusual for her, that the problem couldn't be solved, because there was a mistake in the premise, but she didn't know what it was. Maestra Oliviero scolded her harshly. I saw Lila standing at the blackboard, chalk in hand, very small and pale, assaulted by the volleys of cruel phrases. I felt her suffering. I couldn't bear the trembling of her lower lip and nearly burst into tears. When one cannot solve a problem, the teacher concluded coldly, one does not say there is a mistake in the problem. One says I am not capable of solving it. The principal was silent. As far as I remember, the day ended there. That makes me so sad. Yeah. I feel like there's so much to like say about ev- literally every single bit of this book, but like obviously, books start off representing like curiosity, cleverness, escapism, yeah, and then that escapism becomes an actual mode of escape,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but that's so quickly narrowed by the teacher's disapproval, and I feel like Lila really believes in herself, but that's not allowed, yeah, by the neighborhood that she's in. I also need to point out here that the last line, the day as I remember it ended here, that's such a writerly thing to say because it draws attention to the fact that you're being told a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And implies that Elena has written this book which has been published, which complicates the idea that she's always second to Lila. Mm. Which, kind of, spoiler alert, is the whole point of the book. Yeah. So yeah, Lila's imagination is dashed and so as a teenager, she changes her tactics and she gets a bit more practical because she's still determined that she's going to like transcend the neighbourhood. Right, yeah. So this is represented by shoes. I see. Because Lila is a cobbler's daughter, which delights me, because I love a workshop in a book. She knew that her father as a boy had wanted to be free, had fled the shop of her grandfather, who was also a shoemaker, and had gone to work in a shoe factory in Casoria, where he had made shoes for everyone, even soldiers going to war. She had discovered that Fernando knew how to make a shoe from beginning to end by hand, but he was also completely at home with the machines and knew how to use them, the post machine, the trimmer, the sander. She talked to me about leathers, uppers, leather goods dealers, leather production, high heels and flat heels, about preparing the thread, about soles and how the sole was applied, coloured and buffed. She used all the words of the trade as if they were magic and her father had learned them in an enchanted world, Kisoria, the factory, from which he had returned like a satisfied explorer, so satisfied that now he preferred the family shop, the quiet bench, the hammer, the iron foot, the good smell of the glue mixed with that of old shoes. And she drew me inside that vocabulary with such an energetic enthusiasm that her father and Reno, thanks to their ability to enclose people's feet in solid, comfortable shoes, seemed to me the best people in the neighbourhood. Above all, I came home with the impression that not spending my days in a shoemaker's shop, having for a father a banal porter instead, I was excluded from a rare privilege. I began to feel that my presence in class was pointless. For months and months it seemed to me that every promise had fled from the textbooks, all energy. Coming out of school, dazed by unhappiness, I passed Fernando's shop only to see Lila at her workplace, sitting at a little table in the back, her thin chest with no hint of a bosom, her scrawny neck, her small face. I don't know what what she did exactly but she was there, active beyond the glass door sit between the bent head of her father and the bent head of her brother no books, no lessons, no homework sometimes I stopped to look at the boxes of polish in the window the old shoes newly resold new ones put on a form that expanded the leather and widened them, making them more comfortable as if I were a customer and had an interest in the merchandise I went away only and reluctantly when she saw me and waved to me and I answered her wave and she returned to concentrate on her work But often it was Reno who noticed me first and made funny faces to make me laugh. Embarrassed, I ran away without waiting for Lila to see me. One Sunday, I was surprised to find myself talking passionately about shoes with Carmelo Peluso. She would buy the magazine Sogno and devour the photo novels. At first, it seemed to me a waste of time. Then I began to look too, and we started to read them together and comment on the stories and what the characters said. What was written in white letters on a black background. Carmela tended to pass without a break from comments on the fictional love stories to comments on the true love story of her love for Alfonso. In order not to seem inferior, I once told her about the pharmacist's son, Gino, claiming that he loved me. She didn't believe it. The pharmacist's son was in her eyes a kind of unattainable prince, future heir of the pharmacy, a a gentleman who would never marry the daughter of a porter, and I was on the point of telling her about the time he had asked to see my breasts and I had let him and earned 10 lira. But we were holding the sonyo spread out on our knees, and my gaze fell on the beautiful high-heeled shoes of one of the actresses. This seemed to me a momentous subject, more important than the story of my breasts, and I couldn't resist. I began to praise them, and whoever had made such beautiful shoes, and to fantasise that if we wore shoes like that, neither Gino nor Alfonso would be able to resist us. The more I talked, though, the more I realised, to my embarrassment, that I was trying to make Lila's new passion my own. Carmela listened to me distractedly, then said she had to go. In Shoes and Shoemakers, she had little or no interest. Although she imitated Lila's habits, she, unlike me, held on only to things that really absorbed her. The photo novels. Love stories. Mm. That is one of my favourite bits of the whole book, because I love the idea, again, like you had the words of death, now you've got the words of cobbling. <laughs> yeah. That allows like, Lila to access that world. Of sort of male freedom, mm-hmm. uh, words are just really important in this book. I love the idea as well that like, her dad goes away to like a magic place and comes back. because yeah. I feel like that is how they um, see it. <laughs> but it's also a really neat moment of foreshadowing because Carmela, who is obsessed with love, becomes a stand-in for like readers, consumers, people in general, because. More than language or craft or writing, whatever love is like the highest status symbol in their society, mm-hmm. and it's the one which women are often reduced to. Yeah, as we see in Little Women, which is a nice little throwback. Mm-hmm. But one of the saddest things about this book is that after writing the blue fairy doesn't help her to escape. Spoiler alert: design, designing shoes doesn't help her to escape either. Lila. And because Lila does it, Elena does it. Turns to marriage to help her escape. I see. Which neither of them really want mm-hmm. because, but they want to get out of their neighborhood. Yeah. So this is a passage from when the girls are about fifteen. Elena's still at school and Lila's left, and she's engaged to someone called Stefano, but that's not really important. Okay. So Elena's just made this really beautiful, impassioned, clever argument about like religion that she's learning about at school, and she's like really good at theology and philosophy. and mm-hmm. She's like super clever. And she just said all this to Lila and this is what Lila does next. Okay. Lila, I remember, was preparing to go out with Stefano. They were going to a cinema in the centre with Pinuccia, Reno and Alfonso. I watched while she put on a new skirt, a new jacket, and she was truly another person now. Even her ankles were no longer like sticks. Yet I saw that her eyes narrowed as when she tried to grasp something fleeting. She said, in dialect... You still waste time with those things, Lenu. We are flying over a ball of fire. The part that has cooled floats on the lava. On that part we construct the buildings, the bridges and the streets and every so often the lava comes out of Vesuvius or causes an earthquake that destroys everything. There are microbes everywhere that make us sick and die. There are wars. There is poverty that makes us all cruel. Every second something might happen that will cause you such suffering that you'll never have enough tears. And what are you doing? a theology course in which you struggle to understand what the Holy Spirit is. Forget it. It was the devil who invented the world, not the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you want to see the string of pearls that Stefano gave me? That was how she talked, more or less, confusing me. And not only in a situation like that, but more and more often, until that tone became established, became her way of standing up to me. If I said something about the very Holy Trinity, She, with a few hurried but good-humoured remarks, cut off any possible conversation and went on to show me Stefano's presents: the engagement ring, the necklace, a new dress, a hat. while the things that I had loved, that made me shine in front of the teachers, so that they considered me clever, slumped in a corner, deprived of their meaning. I let go of ideas, of books. I went on to admire all those gifts that contrasted with the humble house of Fernando the shoemaker. I tried on the dresses and the jewellery. I almost immediately noticed that they would never suit me as they did her, and I was depressed. (laughs) This is devastating. Yeah. Because I think it shows how girls were, and like obviously still are a bit, conditioned to let go of like creativity and imagination. Yeah. And value their looks and their status. But it's also so frustrating as a reader, because this is quite far on in the book. Mm -hmm. We still see Elena idolising Lila. Yeah i making out that she's better, and like, but like, Lila's values are changing, and they're changing Elena's, and that yeah. seems so weak. And I'm like, <laughs> Elena, what are you doing? Yeah. And also at this point, the whole speech Elena makes before that moment—it's too long to read out—but it's so intellectual and clever, and yet she's still insisting that Lila's smarter and has more of a clue. Yeah. So like, it is such a wise. Like slow burn portrayal of like self image and the way that like that happens in female friendship, but do you know what? Probably no one's gonna actually read this book, so I'm just gonna say the big hit home point of it. Yeah. The brilliant friend is Elena, <laughs> <laughs> and there is a like horribly devastating line where Lila says offhand later, like you have all of this internal monologue of Elena idolizing Lila. And then Lila basically gets into trouble and she mm. needs Elena's help. And she's, she's turns around and she says like, but you're my brilliant friend. You'll be able to help. I mm. waited for you so that you could help me. Yeah. And Elena still doesn't realise oh, that so the sad. whole time that she's idolising Lila, Lila's looking to her. Yeah. Lila wants to go to school and she's not allowed. And Mm. Elena's like, oh, school's boring because that's not what Lila's doing. Yeah, yeah. And like, she she doesn't want to marry this guy. And then Elena's like, oh, I should get engaged. Yeah. It's a really sad book, but it's really well done in the way that I think when I was saying about how when they're younger, the narration is simplified. And then as they get older, you get a bit more of the nuance. Mm -hmm. It does a really good job of tricking you through the younger narration into like really not liking Lila and -hmm. thinking she's like, a bit of a bitch. Yeah. Because she is mean to Elena at some points. But that's Elena's narration that you're getting. And then, there's a kind of turning point where you start to realise and you're like, Lila's not that bad. And, you have a really twisted self-image, Elena. It's like
0: in How I Met Your Mother. (laughs) When you realise, like, how Barney's portrayed is, like, not that great. Mm -hmm. And then spoilers for how about your mother i guess and then obviously because he ends well because Barney and robin get together you're like oh yeah it's so horrible about Barney because he's jealous Jealous. that he
1: ended up with robin and you're like oh it
0: makes sense now so it's kind of like that yeah it's literally like that
1: it's like elena's so jealous of lila but but she doesn't realize that she has the better life
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And all the opportunity, like, like you got the hint there of like Lila's dad literally throws th- throws her through a window. Yeah. At one point, it's not a happy home. Yeah. <laughs> so, but she's like, oh, she's so cool, blah blah, and I'm mm. like, what the fuck? Yeah. So I'm really interested. This this book ends at an event in Lila's life mm-hmm. that Elena's at, and they are sixteen. And yeah. I'm really interested to see if the next one like carries mm. on about Lila or if it's like about a different family or something. Yeah. I don't know. But I'm just like, what the? What a bizarre and amazing twist! Is like, are the other ones out yet? Or oh yeah, yeah, they've been out for ages. Been out for ages. So right, okay. So, I'm excited yeah. to go and read them, mm-hmm. but I don't like I say I've kind of tried to go in blind because I don't yeah, really want to know. Yeah, not know. Yeah, but I'm like bizarre. Anyway. <laughs> That's that was a complete wild ride, and I didn't really have a coherent point to make. But I'm just like, go read this book because, apart from anything, it makes you feel smarter. Yeah, cool. I feel like we really leaned into infatuated today. Yeah, we we both
0: took so long. We're both really, really infatuated
1: (laughs) with these books.
0: I think the rest of our stuff's really quick. Yeah, that's fine. Let's go.
1: So, writing chat this week, you, you brought us a fun little challenge.
0: Yeah, so someone asked Hannah Witten, who's the author of For the Wolf, this question on Instagram, and I thought we would just steal it and use it, and it is to, like, show us your characters as song lyrics, so I don't know how many you did, but I did, like, my three main characters from my book, and then I also did my two main characters from my other book, because I just had answers. Love it. So,
1: Love to see it. Cool. Will
0: I go first? Yeah, yeah you go sure.
1: first. So, I've just talked a lot. Give me a minute. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm not going to name them, because I just... You know. Mm. Main boy one. <laughs> I've gone for a song called Head Above Water by Mother Folk, and the lyric that I picked is if we're all pages and the book is unfinished, then shouldn't we be able to choose what's in it? Ooh. <laughs> and then Girl <laughs> is a song which I've definitely talked about on here before. She Tastes Like Summer mm. by Spilt Milk Society. And the lyric is She Tastes Like Summer and She Smells Like Home. Her smile could inspire some to change the world. Oh. Which is such a good line. And then main Boy 2 <laughs> is from a song by Harbour called Judy You Hung Them In. And it's, and you don't see yourself the way that I see you. If it's the last thing I do, I'll find a way to make you see it too. Aww. Do you want to do yours and then I'll
1: do my other Yeah, sure. People. <laughs> um, so I've done this less as like lyrics that describe the characters, because I find that really hard, but more ones that I can imagine them like relating to. Nice, I like it. So my main girl lyric comes from Peace by Taylor Swift. And is. I've done verses because I can't do just a line. Yep. Our coming of age has come and gone Suddenly this summer it's clear I never had the courage of my convictions As long as danger was near And it's just around the corner, darling Because it lives in me Oh, I could never give you peace. Mm. Um, I like it. For my main man, it would be this from Real Peach by Henry Jameson, which I think I've talked about on here before. And it is... Well, nighttime passes, but the dark remains. And I was feeling like a little child, but I am loath to place blame on that lioness woman who will go here unnamed. She was looking in me for a lion when she found it so tame.
0: Oh,
1: I like it. I love that verse in general. <laughs> it's so good. I love in that lioness-esque woman. Mm, it's such a, a good, good crunchy word. Yeah. <laughs> and then for the relationship between main girl and her best friend, I have got this one, which I think they could just trade lines, and it's "Hold the Moon" by mm. the Waterboys. Nice. <laughs> I spoke about wings. You just flew. I wondered, I guessed, and I tried. You just knew. I sighed, but you swooned. I saw the crescent, but you saw the whole of the moon. Love it. Yeah, so those are those are some very cryptic clues about her
0: characters. Yeah. What are your other ones? Um. So yeah. So these, I have two main characters in my like novel that I will work on at some point. Uh. So main boy is a song called "Come On Mess Me Up" by Cub Sport, and it's I found comfort. I fell in love with avoiding problems, and that was the problem, because I want this you know I want this, so come on, mess me up. <laughs> <laughs> and then main girl is a funeral by Maisie Peters and James Bay, which we've talked about a million times Because it's this such podcast. a fucking vibe. Uh, and the lyric that I picked for her is, I want you to want me when you're dead to
1: roll in your grave like we're not done yet. Love it. <laughs> I Do you know what line out that song I just can't get over because it like guts me every single time is Mm -hmm. i'd pin all of my hopes to your handlebars i love that as well and like the what's the other one you sitting there with your headphones in you're the point to all of this yeah i'm like oh so good (laughs) what was your
0: quickfire favorite i (laughs) i got too excited and showed you mine yesterday (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so yeah my favourite this week is pretty random it's the recent Grammy performance of Butter by BTS it is pretty cool though and I'll tell you for a while. <laughs> so <laughs> basically I follow newly debuted author Grace Lee on Twitter and the day after the Grammys she was getting loads of people tweeting her saying BTS totally just took inspiration from your book like in this performance because her debut portrait of a thief which I am so excited to read, it's the next book that I'm going to buy, is an Asian heist novel. It's about college students stealing back looted art. Oh, that's cool. It sounds so cool. So basically, despite me knowing zero information about BTS, other than them being a K-pop group, <laughs> and them like, playing in my work, I was like, I have to watch this performance, because if that's the vibe for a novel, then like I want to mm. watch it. So the performance does look like a heist, it's a bit like mission impossible oceans 11 yeah kind of vibe the dancing is insane i'm sure i'm saying things that people have known for years but the stage presence they were incredible <laughs> they also do this absolutely mad move that involves their jackets like coming off and like, turning into like a big loop and then they play the sleeves as guitars
1: <laughs> yeah it was it's interesting i don't understand how they made because they were wearing the jackets. They were wearing the jackets. But then, then the jackets seemed to be, like, solid when they took them off.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I've watched it
0: multiple times to try and work out how they did it, and I'm still not quite sure. Some sort of black magic. Yeah. I also figured out that I have a favourite. I've worked out his name. I worked this out last night. His name is V, his stage name. He's the only one whose name I know. Uh, he's the one who flirts with Olivia Le- Rodrigo at the start of, like, the mm. clip. He's very beautiful. And yeah, basically, just want to say that's my like quick, fire favorite. But I like, am now just like, okay, I need to watch all of their videos now <laughs> because I just love watching synchronized dancing. Like, oh, I just love it. I find it so satisfying. Yeah,
1: you do. You do love like a dance. I do. Movie
0: or like? I really do and I don't. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I can't do it, and I'm like, <laughs> just like, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. But yeah, I also. Made you watch the only other like dance that I've watched of theirs, which was to their song "On," which was one of the only songs that I actually kind of knew mm. from BTS. And I don't know how I found it, Um but yeah, that was like a six-minute long, like insane dance video. Yeah. Um. So I also recommend that one. It's pretty cool. Um, also, this is just slightly related. You know, at the end of "Butter," <laughs> when it's like. Uh, what would you call it? Where it's like a bridge, but it's obviously at the end of a song, but it's like totally different from the rest of the song. Yeah, uh,
1: like a post chorus or something. Yeah, like I don't know. A, my, like,
0: like a int- refrain. It's not a refrain because that's that comes yeah. back. Yeah. Like my into music theory mm. has just gone out of my head, so I don't know. But see the end of Butter, that's so good. I love that. Like bit the that outro, song. I guess. Yeah. Whatever that bit is, mm. I like it. Um. So. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that's my favourite. <laughs> uh, what well, is your quickfire favourite this week? Um, Mine is, like, not a... Cu- like, it's an old favourite thing, but mm. I've recently come back to it because I yeah. was like, wow, I fucking love this. And it's just the artist Suzanne Vega in general. I love Suzanne Vega. <laughs> She's like a 90s kind of... She did, like, acoustic stuff and then she did, like, a weird kind of dance phase, which I don't really recommend, but her acoustic... Uh, like, alt-pop? Not only really alt-pop. Folk rock? I don't know. It was a weird yeah. vibe. But okay. that stuff is really good. And I wanted to just shout out two of my favourite songs because I think that when I was listening to them again this week, I realised that they have two of like the best first lines of a song that I've ever heard. Okay. So, her song Cracking, which is beautiful, um, the first line is, It's a one-time thing. It just happens a lot.
0: Okay. yeah. (laughs) And I just think that's such
1: a good start. It's the first song on the album as well. Mm. So I just think that's such a good way to start an album. Yeah. And then she has another song called Marlena on the Wall. And (laughs) the first line is good on its own. It's, even if I am in love with you, all this to say, what's it to you? (laughs) But she goes on and it's like a very like jaunty song mm-hmm. so it's even if i am in love with you all this to say what's it to you observe the blood the rose tattoo and the fingerprints on me from you other evidence has shown that you and i are still alone we skirt around the danger zone and don't talk about it later <laughs> and i just think that's like a whole narrative in four lines yeah that's cool like you, i could write I did once try to write a book based on one of her songs, The Queen and the Soldier, mm. um, I might go back to it. But I feel like Observe the Blood, the Rose Tattoo and the Fingerprints on Me from You mm. is like, that's a book right yeah. there. I yeah. can see a whole a whole <laughs> life from there. So I would really recommend her as a songwriter. Cool. She's got a nice voice. Do you have a root for
0: us? I do!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought this week, since I was so taken with the mystery of Elena Ferrante, that I would try to find some stuff about pseudonyms. Okay. So a lot of the trivia, like the fun trivia about pseudonyms, is already quite widespread. For like example, we all know that Brontes published under male pen names, so that their work would be taken more seriously. Mm-hmm. We both know and adore Lemony Snicket as a pseudonym, who's also a character. Yes. We all know that George Eliot was actually a woman, etc., etc., But, one thing that I didn't know, which I thought was quite funny, is that during the 20th century, loads of male romance writers used female pen names. I knew this. I didn't know this. Yeah. So you've got Peter O'Donnell was Madeline Brent, Mm. Uh, Christopher Wood was Penny Sutton and Rosie Dixon, and Hugh C. Ray was Jessica Sterling, who's, Mm. like, quite a famous romance writer. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think there's loads of narratives... Quite like quite rightly in the media about female writers publishing under male names mm-hmm. and men taking credit for their work, but I want the rom com about the male romance writer who publishes under a female name mm. and then like falls in love with a reader that the reader doesn't know that it's him or yeah. something. That would be, yeah. I just, I need that in my (laughs) life. Someone just phone up Richard Curtis and make this happen. Because I feel like that would make such a good movie. That is a very
0: Richard Curtis film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So that's my, that's my, it's not really a route, it's just a one fact. Yeah, nice. (laughs) What's your insight?
0: My insight this week comes from a book. So I recently picked up The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows by John Koenig. And this is a book which, and I quote, Defines new words for emotions that we all feel but don't have the language to express. By turns poignant, relatable, and mind-bending, the definitions include whimsical etymologies drawn from languages around the world. So I haven't read all of this. I think it's just one that's going to kind of sit by my bedside for a long time as I Mm -hmm. like slowly flick through it because there's also like essays throughout it. It's not just word definitions. But I thought from my insight today I would have a quick look through to see if there are any words that I think are emotions that we at infatuated oh. experience. So I picked out three for today but there's definitely more. This one is Loose Left It's Adjective Feeling a sense of loss upon finishing a good book, sensing the weight of the back cover locking away the lives of characters you've gotten to know so well. From loose leaf, a removable sheet of paper, and left, departed. Aw, that's cute. That is cute. We've got... Gobo Noun. The delirium of having spent all day in an aesthetic frame of mind. Watching a beautiful movie, taking photos across the city, getting lost in an art museum. Which infuses the world with an aura of meaning until every crack in the wall becomes a commitment to naturalism and every rainbow swirling in a puddle feels like a choice. Short for go between. In theatrical lighting, a gobo is a layer inserted into a lamp that shapes the pool of light that hits the stage, pronounced gobo.
1: That's cool. That is cool. That's like, <laughs> you know, all those TikToks where it's like you come out of the cinema feeling like the main character? Yeah. That's what that is. Fetching.
0: Verb. Compulsively turning away from works of art you find frustratingly, nauseatingly good. Wanting to shut off the film and leave the theatre or devour a book only in maddening little chunks because it resonates at precisely the right frequency to rattle you to your core, which makes it mildly uncomfortable to be yourself. From bitching. Markedly good and fetch the european polecat an animal that often cripples its prey by piercing its brain with its teeth before storing it alive in its burrow to return and eat sometime later
1: oh (laughs) obsessed with that i know but yeah
0: i just love those and yeah this is like a
1: lovely wee book that i'm very excited to look more at (laughs) i'm very enthralled by the fact that it's in our house I know. <laughs> I feel like that is an absolute poet's dream. That yeah, e-book.
0: It might have to live out here, actually, rather than in my room. I yeah. feel like I'm keeping it away from you <laughs> <because> in <I'm> my <laughs> <that>
1: room. <laughs> have well, we finally reached the end? Yeah. <laughs> of this mammoth episode. Yeah, that is us. If you have
0: any comments or questions, our email is infatuatedpodcast at com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with the... just lost everything that I forgot to say. Along with everything we talked about today. There it is. um, Oh my god. Uh, We also have the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music that we mentioned. A significant helping more now. Definitely. Yeah, there's like a lot lot of (laughs) songs I have to add to that and yeah please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there please do that
1: goodbye Bye. bye